Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM from Chapel FM Art Centre, except that I'm at home and talking to our guest today on Zoom. And it's really fantastic to have it have him with us, Adam Farah, who the writer of Coldfish Soup. And I'll talk about how that links in with us in a few minutes. But first of all, welcome, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. And also, um, it's great to be featuring and to be reading Coldfish Soup uh, on for the Readathon. The Readathon, just to put people in, uh, in, the, in to give people some background, is an event that we have organised before. We've done three or four of them. But this time, this, this one is in partnership with Leeds Literature Festival. And it's on the 25th of February. You might be listening to this after that event but uh we're really looking forward to it in a couple of weeks time we read a whole book through the night and um usually a group of anything between 10 and 30 of us but spread over the whole night it's a very lovely thing um and uh, the dawn comes up through the stained glass windows as we like to say hopefully it, it will rather than just be a classy bloody murk and um yeah i was i was looking for a suitable book uh and steve did and i don't know if you know steve adam uh, yeah, yeah. He, he actually contacted me on in- Instagram a few months ago to say that he'd, he'd really enjoyed the book. Um, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't realise it was him that had uh, made this happen. So that's that's really, that's lovely. Well, I phoned him up and racked his brains and said, look, I, I, we need a book. And he totally recommended this book. And he was absolutely right. I've, it's, it's, so I, I've t- really enjoyed the book, Adam, and I, I can't wait to be reading it with the rest of us. So first of all, yeah, it, it, it's it's called Coldfish Soup. It's about, it's it's set in Withensea in Yorkshire. So it's a Yorkshire book for us. It's great. But perhaps you could just put in a nutshell what the book is kind of about for you. Yeah, um, it's, it's a sort of collection of um, essays, personal essays or true stories about life specifically in Withensea, but also the broader um east yorkshire coast going up to um north yorkshire as well um and it's it's basically a, a book that i started working on because i felt that that part of the the country um was underrepresented in literature and i had all these stories that i wanted to tell about it and get people to care about this this part of the country that I you know, dearly loved because I moved there when I was 16 and the book sort of gets into this um yeah I moved there in 1992 to uh to Withensea when I was 16 and my life uh down south because I was I was from Suffolk originally wasn't going particularly well 
and uh, I, I saw this move to the north as like hugely like an an opportunity to transform myself and reinvent myself. And the idea of living by the coast, you know, I had all these ideas of um, the East Yorkshire coast is looking like Baywatch or something. I had these ideas of <laughs> the the glamour of the the coastal life. And um, as far as I'm concerned, I was I was right. You know, <laughs> it, it, the the sea might be brown and the the beach might be kind of grey, but it's still magical to me that coast. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to tell all these stories about my experience of moving to that um, that region, um, my love for the place, my obsession with the sea, and talk more about the people of that region. So um, there's a an essay in there about my mum's burlesque troupe. Uh, which is based in Withensea. Uh, <clears throat> there's uh, one about paranormal belief and the uh, the people further up the coast who believe that it's a hotspot for UFOs and werewolves and all this stuff. So and I, I just found that it was a really rich ground for stories. And um, yeah, the more I wrote, the more fascinating, fascinating the place became for me. So it's, yeah, it's a collection of stories that represent my love and fascination for that coastline, I think is the I could have said that as <laughs> the, the quick way of summing it up. That's great. And I mean, by implication or by extension, I should say, it's kind of about all seaside towns, not perhaps all seaside towns, but the, I mean, uh, I don't know, it seemed to me that see uh, the seaside, if you like, and coastal towns tend to attract a kind of marginality, people who are escaping. I mean, this you deal with this in the book. You look at that, people who've escaped there, people who have been placed there, rehoused there, or, uh, and, and oh, there's a sort of, um, yeah, this sort of atmosphere. I'm thinking of, you know, other, other stories about coastal towns, like, well, Brighton Rock, you know, Graham Greene thing where sort of crime happens. So sort of seediness, but also a charm. I mean, yeah, was that, uh, was that your intention in some way? Um, as, as I was writing it, um, I was aware that I was working on stories that were broadly universal to, um to the british coast really because one one of the f- the most inspiring books i um i had before before i started writing this was uh, the kingdom by the sea mm. by paul theroux where he walks uh the entire coast of the the uk and um gets into that kind of seediness and the the tired nature of all coastal towns there is there's there's something common in all of them um and i wanted to address that but also he he didn't write about that with any sort of love or affection and i i've got a huge warmth for not just withensea but like places like fleetwood over in the uh, the northwest which is a very grim town but there's some there's there's beauty to be found and joy to be found in all of these towns and um yeah i i think I realized while I was writing that I was tapping into that. And also the responses I've got from readers who are not necessarily from East Yorkshire, but from all from coastal towns all over the UK, they, they, these stories have resonated with them because there is a common experience. There is that thing, like you say, of people who are kind of, they blow into the town and they're like, they've got to find a new way of being and find roots and, keep going uh in these these towns that are kind of tired and don't have a lot of opportunities 
you do i mean there's there's a massive amount of warmth in your book and great humanity i mean not just for the place and the people who live there but also for members of your family and your friends i mean that's hmm. a, a mem writing a memoir kind of when everybody seems to be apart from your brother and we'll come to that <coughs> excuse me uh they're still alive and that how was that I mean, because i mean there are quite a few there are stories about sort of the writers upsetting friends and family in this endeavor mm. yeah it, it it was it was um it was tricky um because there there is that um i can't remember the the person who said it there's, there's a line about how um once there's a writer in the family the family family is cursed because they, they've got to deal with this kind of invasive nature if, if you're not writing memoir then you're being fictionalized you know um but i i found that my my family have always been quite um open and generous with their personal stories um we were very we were a family that communicates a lot and we we talked about um as the book started to get more serious and there was a proper manuscript coming together um i spoke to my family and explain what i was doing so that i told them you know i am writing these stories about um about them and about my brother and um the impact that his death had on the whole family so they knew that i was going to a very difficult place not only for me but for them and there was a huge responsibility there because i had to i had to represent them honestly and respectfully and not expose them too much um so yeah and, and then my, my brother has got lots of children so i've got those people to consider it's it's a very sort of dangerous area to be to be playing with really because you've, you've got to be uh respectful especially when you're dealing with the people that you you love most in the world but i had um one of the most moving things i think um with this book was getting my family to to read it and then their their feedback um so like my, my sister in particular was was the person that moved me because she she said um the way i'd written about her made her feel seen and she didn't think that anyone saw her and so she that felt like okay well i've i've managed to get the tone correct because i've i've written someone as they really feel about themselves on, on the page i've got their essence and once i got that kind of endorsement my mum was the same way she definitely recognized herself on the page i felt that i'd been i got the balance right i hadn't upset anyone and that yeah that was that was so important to me because it's you know it's it's russian roulette really it's like there's, there's a there's a danger before we go on, do you think you could just read a bit from the book so we get a uh, a flavour of 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 what it's like? Okay, yeah. So I'll, I'll read, um, I'll read a section where from the from the start of the book where I've gone to uh, Withensee Golf Club, this prefabricated building um, near my parents' house for Christmas dinner. So I've gone home to my family for for Christmas in a very depressed state. And I'm trying to um, make sure that my mum doesn't worry too much about me. So I'm putting on a kind of performance and performance is a big aspect of, of the book. So, um, yeah, I'm putting on a, 
a performance of I'm okay, you don't need to worry for my mum. My mother is a passionate performer, always looking for an excuse to apply grease paint and parade about in front of an audience. She's in her 70s now, but still performs in a dance troupe as a member of the local choir and as part of a pirate singing group in which she travels the country roaring shanties in coastal towns while dressed like a drunken sailor. She wanted us children to share her enthusiasm for the spotlight, and it was clear that part of her looked at my siblings and I and saw potential for her own merry little band of Von Traps. Being the eldest, my, sister's Be- my sister Becky was the first to find herself being crammed into a sweat-inducing polyester outfit and shoved into a chorus line. Whether she was a blackbird baked in a pie or the fart-addled rear end of a pantomime horse, she suffered it with the stoicism of a regularly humiliated prisoner of war. My brother Robert was bolder, more cocksure, willingly taking the lead in Oliver at the age of ten, his voice pure and bell-like as he performed a saintly rendition of Where is Love, giving no indication that by that age he'd already started smoking and carrying a flick knife in his back pocket. But it was Becky's plight that interested me the most, because it came with costumes. It was particularly drawn I was particularly drawn to the flying monkey outfit that she wore in an amateur production of The Wizard of Oz. Unlike in the movie, it was entirely brown and topped off, for reasons known only to our mother, with a glitter-specked afro wig. I loved it so much that I insisted she let me try it on, tights and all, so I could pose for a photo. And the image still exists somewhere, of me standing in our living room, cock-hipped and sassy as a tomcat, so effervescent with showbiz pep, you'd think I'd just pirouetted out of a successful audition for Starlight Express. But this kind of display meant nothing. You may have seen me happily strutting around our house dressed like Carmen Miranda, but threaten me with a stage and I've seen people box up feral cats with less fuss. I was deeply afraid of public humiliation and failure, an anxiety fueled by the the acute self-knowledge that I was exactly the kind of kid who might somehow wander out in front of an audience with his dick poking out of his fly. So the fact that I behaved one way at home and another outside of it, dogged in my resistance to the stage, was perceived by my mother as a considered act of screwing with her. Come on, she'd insist through gritted teeth, nudging me toward the stage during rehearsals in the town hall. It'll be fun. But I knew what fun was, and it didn't involve a room full of people booing at my adolescent penis. So I'd hold my ground until she gave up. What I didn't reckon with was that I was absorbing the need to perform by osmosis, that over the years I would feel drawn to stages, first in bands, strapping on guitars and stepping out in front of audiences to sing amongst waves of protective distortion and clattering noise then eventually alone, to read stories and talk, and now, it seems, to stand before my mother and put on a show in a golf club. Because growing up in our house was a lot like being the lone non-smoker in the room. You can abstain all you want, but given time, you'll still end up smelling like an ashtray. And if you spend enough time around my mother, then, one way or another, you'll somehow find yourself in stage tights. Lovely stuff. And that was from... Coldfish Soup by Adam Farron, who we're talking to now. Who we're, the book we're featuring and reading on at the Readathon as part of Lee's Lit Fest. So thanks ever so much for that, Adam. We're going to hear a piece of music that um, is that are you, are you spotting a UFO out of the window there? You're looking sort of um, slightly. <laughs> I, I was checking the, the, the Spotify uh, list on it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. I was one of the Holderness UFOs you'd suddenly seen out of the window. Oh, no, no, no. Um, let's let's hear a piece of music that you've chosen and we're going to talk 
we're going to be talking about your Spotify list and the, the kind of the track, the soundtrack in a way for the book. Mm. Uh, but this this is a, a track by Prince. Tell us why this is important in the book for you. Yeah, um, well, Prince Prince is someone um, that I've dearly loved um, my entire life, and there, he turns up a couple of times in the book actually for different reasons. Um, but this is uh, a track called Starfish and Coffee that's mentioned in the the first essay or chapter in the book uh, where I am um, kind of morbidly depressed and standing on the edge of a cliff contemplating my existence. And I put on my iPod on shuffle just to play a song that might help me decide my future and um you know should i jump should i you know should i save my life i wanted a real piece of significant music and then starfish and coffee popped on which is a, a song about breakfast and doesn't mean anything and it was the perfect piece of music at the time it was sent for the foul on the line to, to teach miss kathleen first was kevin then came losing third in line was me all of us were ordinary compared to cynthia rose she always stood in the back of the line A smile beneath her nose Her favorite number was 20 And every single day If you ask her what you had for breakfast This is what she'd say Starfish and coffee Maple syrup and jam Butterscotch clouds and a tangerine Inside all the ham If you set your mind free, baby Maybe you understand Starfish and coffee So that was Starfish and Coffee by Prince, chosen by Adam Farah. Um, so Adam, the there seems to there's a lot of death in the book, um, as well as humour and warmth and, and humanity and mm. hope in a way. Um, and the, I suppose the heart of it is the seems to me the the death of your brother, the suicide of your brother Robert. But um, the book sort of starts starts out on a cliff edge. And the kind of edges seem to be a theme for me, just reading the book, you know, mm. and the kind of, yeah, the fact that I suppose we all, as if withency is a kind of metaphor for our, of all our lives, that we're all, the, the, the sort of, the sea of, the sort of death is encroaching, whatever we want, uh, or yeah. whatever we, uh, whatever we would like to be different. And uh, we are all standing on that edge. Is that, I mean, it's, it's, it's that that felt very powerful for me that that metaphor but also very very well sustained throughout the book but yes was it was that a, yeah for you i mean writing about your brother was that hard yeah it was um it was a real it was again like writing with about the rest of my family it was a real it's a real challenge to do it sensitively to consider 
his loved ones and the people behind and but really get into the personality of my brother and the way that you know mental illness ate away at him in the same way that the you know the seas eating away at the cliffs on the the east yorkshire coast these these sort of parallels between um the environment and life and death seem to just naturally occur while writing about about this stuff and i did i kind of i didn't really intend to to write so much about um robert's death i was originally it was going to be um what just one of the key stories because it's such an important thing that happened to our family in that town um but the more i wrote the more this this thread of um mental health and depression and death sort of threaded through this book and it was it's weird because it's the the tone i wanted to take was broadly entertaining so i wanted to write an entertaining book but it's somehow it's and i think it's from what i can gather from readers it somehow manages to be um this entertaining book while being about some really dark and un- uncomfortable uncomfortable things um but i i found writing about my brother that i found um a new a new relationship with him really because there were times after after he died um there were periods where i was hugely angry with him because of uh what what he'd done the way he'd done it the people he left behind and you have you have to get through that part of the grieving process is just being furious with people that you've you've lost in this way but the writing about him and our relationship um a sometimes tumultuous relationship really allowed me to have um a new relationship with him and uh find a new way to to love him and that that was a a huge unexpected reward um for me but also when i spoke to my brother's children his his eldest children who read some of the book the the thing that they said was that i managed to bring him back to life by writing about him and yeah that's just like that's an incredibly moving thing and i i did not expect that i didn't expect yeah i wasn't entirely sure they would want to read this book about you know the, the book in which they feature dealing with these these challenging things but it felt like a, a strange sort of act of magic to have brought back someone and like they recognized their dad in the same way that my my sister recognized himself herself they recognized their dad and his much younger children got to see a part of their dad that they hadn't really known and it ended up being a gift to them so there's all these very unexpected um repercussions of me digging around in my personal story with uh, with robert well, I think you 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 walk some very very fine lines in in the book, and I think it's a, the achievement, a huge achievement, really, that you managed to 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 write a book that is full of humour, but also kind of death haunted as well, um, and also is is about something like the suicide of a brother, and it's it's it spoke to me about masculinity very strongly and about being a man. Um, you talk about Robert being your the, the, a kind of an image of manhood, really, for you and growing up, and you sought to emulate him in different ways. 
Um, but also, I just thought in other ways in the book, too, there was a lot about um, men and sort of belief or lack of belief, it seemed to me. Now, the UFOs, you know, the, the kind of when when there's a void, when there's when there's we're all threatened with that, that awful sort of sense of there is no meaning, there is nothing. But um, mm. but yeah, I don't know. Men seem to I don't, I'm not saying men suffer from this more than any other any other gender. But I think there is that thing of, yeah, belief, lack of belief, what fills that void, really. Yeah, I, 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 that was an, an interesting, um, again, like an unexpected byproduct of writing about the the paranormal belief um, in um, yeah, one, one of the essays that looks at um, yeah, the, the belief along the broader Holderness coast as you go up towards Bridlington and round Flamborough Head and a little bit further up, you there are these these sightings um of not only ufos and um like balls of light but also this talk of interdimensional werewolves mm. you know, popping through into this um this realm and the, the whole belief around that and I, d- I don't know if it's a something that has really been on the rise since the the lowering import of importance of religion. So if they, that fills the same, you know, there's a, there's a vacuum there, and it needs needs to be uh, filled with something. So people stare out to see and look for meaning, and maybe they, you know, they they fool themselves into thinking things are there. Um, but it is it, it does seem like I didn't encounter um, as many women as men looking at, at being fascinated with this this paranormal world and these. These UFOs. There'd certainly women were um, who were fascinated by the area, but it seemed dominated by men who were completely obsessive, and they were sitting out on the on the cliffs waiting to see aliens or waiting to see werewolves. Um, and it felt like it was particularly amplified by a place that is strange and constantly changing. There is a there is a an atmosphere to the the um, the Holderness and uh, further Yorkshire coast. It feels like something unusual is going on, and these um, yeah men seem to be tapping into that. Perhaps because there's nothing else really going on. It's a part of the country that no one cares about. It's kind of um, untroubled by the attention of the rest of the country. So maybe that would be a place that aliens would go to, where they wouldn't be too bothered, you know. Um, and yeah, it was it was um, truly fascinating to to dig around in those ideas. And I suppose there is something about, yeah, I mean, I know that part of the the, the coast and it, it, there is a sense of extremity, you know, that we are at the, you're on the cliff edge, you're on the extreme edge mm. of things, things are falling into the sea. And I think the whole theme of, it just seemed to me of, of extremity in, in, in your book, you know, ex, um, extreme feeling, extreme, I mean, you could say the UFOs was just an example of extreme um fantasy i don't know i mean i wouldn't want to put them down for their beliefs but there's um yeah i i, I heard a fantastic country song recently i don't know if you know it it's called drugs and jesus i don't you know that but no, no. by a guy called tim mcgraw my son introduced me to it and it's yeah it's, it's about his it's, it's about his hometown and how it's a bit like withensee actually i'll send you a link to it but it's yeah. um yeah and in the end there's there's nothing there so what all there is is drugs or jesus you know yeah, and that's that is that is really something. Like when I moved to Withensea, um, I found my own sort of place there. But I I also 
after a few years felt a need to escape because there wasn't there weren't opportunities there there wasn't a lot for me to to do and people do fall into drugs or they do find they don't fall into drugs or alcohol they fall they fall into um burlesque you know like, like my my mum but she she's very good at finding things to do so it's like yeah i'm just i'm just going to be a, a burlesque dancer and suddenly they're on britain's got talent and things are you know amazing things are happening because there's the necessary need to fill that void or to make your own entertainment and make something happen and i think that's one of the the sparks of that coastline really can i ask you um just before we we don't have all the time in the world sadly we don't have all night as we will for the book uh yeah. um in february but um how does withensee feel about the book i was initially a bit concerned um that I was that because there, there's a, a couple of um, essays that really try to address uh, Withensee in an honest way. So I don't, I don't uh, rose tint it, and I explain that it is it, a town that is on its knees. It, it's um, it had former glories about fifty years ago, and it's disappearing at a terrifying rate you know crumbling into the sea it's the fastest eroding part of uh, europe you know it's so it's got all these problems and i was very honest about that and basically short of saying in 100 years it will be gone like it's a doomed place um but i th i think my obvious love for the place um balanced that out so when people from the the town read it the, all the feedback I've got is is hugely positive. I haven't had a single negative response from anyone in, in Withensee. Like there's, um, yeah, someone read the book and is like, yeah, that's that 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 is my terrible town. They, but it was because we we were both from there, so we could we could admit to its failings. And um, yeah, I, I, it's in fact today i just had a, a goodreads review like a five-star goodreads review from someone from withensee who's lived there for 40 years saw their town reflected loved it so and that's that was that was wonderful and also i got to um do a signing in the town back in september or october i think it was um because there's no bookshop in withensee we did it in the cafe where my sister works near the seafront and I turn up there with a big old box of books, uh, thinking, oh, one or two people might turn up, you know. Um, but I got there, there was a queue of people waiting, and I sat in this booth, and people just came up. It's more, I've never sold more books in any one um, time than in that cafe. And uh, people were coming, and they'd read the book, they wanted to buy more copies, they were talking about their relationship with it they were asking how my dad's health was because they were concerned about that like they bought into the book and they bought into our family as characters and it was it was really wonderful just to be in this this room with a parade of people who loved this book and i think appreciated that their their town was being written about because it is a dismissed town yeah. and that uh, you know i i turned up I loved it. I didn't dismiss it, and I told the world. And now that this book is now um, it's published in America, now there are people thousands of miles away connecting with this story of this town that I thought no one cared about. So it's it's been wonderful. 
Well, it does. It's not just about will and see. I think that's the great thing about it. It's it's about it's about all kinds of stuff. And I think I love the sort of stoicism of the people in with and see that the fact that the sea is eating away at their town at an alarming rate. But it's kind of not happening. We get on with it, you know, despite yeah. the fact we can't because we can't. I mean, as human beings, we can't really con contemplate that. It's like, you know, the fact that we're going to die. We are. But we can't. That, that's, that. that's totally it. It's the, it's they are dealing with. We all walk around knowing that we're going to die one day, but we don't stop and think about it. And the people on that coastline, and in particularly uh, and Sea, have got that regular reminder <laughs> that it's like the end is racing towards you. And I think it has done something special to the people there. And the way you describe the sea, I mean, swimming in the sea, in that brown water, I have to say that it's, it's not my favourite place to swim. No. But, you know, the way you describe it, I thought, yeah, okay. Oh, I could buy that brown water. Really well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Well, you it might. It might. People might be flocking to Withensee. But this is the thing. This is. Um. I, I felt a slight amount of guilt about this because people are going. I'm going to book a holiday there. Like, people. <laughs> people want to come to the town now, and part of me is like, I think that's wonderful, and also there's part of me that's like, well, I like this place, but will will everyone? You know, I like freezing cold brown water, crumbling cliffs because it's. A largely you know it's, it's like having a, a pool to yourself like a private pool because no one else is swimming in it if you go up the uh the south end but um yeah uh, i think it's i find it a compelling place well it's it's great to talk to you about the book and also fantastic that you can come along to the beginning of the readathon and be there in person i think that's a uh, a lovely thing and we're we will give you a chapel of fan well, welcome when you arrive same you can't stay for the uh for the dawn but um we'll we'll forgive you yeah that. it's gonna be it's gonna be wonderful like i'm i'm honored that the, my book is being chosen for this and and yeah i think it's it's just a wonderful thing to be part of so thank you very much briefly before we go i just wanted to ask you about um about the real story which you edit because that also looks very interesting yeah, um, so the real story was started in 2011 by an um, American uh, writer called Kate Feld who moved to Manchester and wanted to um, write in the sort of memoir, creative nonfiction form and couldn't find places to submit stories to. So she decided to start her own and she would edit and publish people's stories and also put on regular spoken word events where you could get up and read your your true stories and that's the real story is where i got my my start in writing memoir and nonfiction. i i appeared at their first event i completely fell in love with the whole idea of it it's like i i want to be part of this and over the years like kate stepped back and now i now i run it and i edit it and when we get on to to put on these true storytelling events and publish people's work it's it's wonderful to just be able to share people's stories so yeah it's one of the the things i'm most proud of in in my my writing career marvelous and you also uh you're you're a writer in residence at peel park in salford yeah that's another sort of uh marginalized forgotten place it's a public park tucked away behind the university buildings in salford um people didn't seem much to care about it i, I turned up and said I love this place. I want to write stories about it. Um, will you give me the uh, the title of writer in residence? They went, "Do you want any money?" And I said, "No." And they went, "It's fine then. <laughs> you can you can do it." So I was able to um, yeah write 
I started writing diaries about um, the things that I saw in the park and things I'd heard and different scenes, like little vignettes of, of life in that park. And also go through the park keeper's diaries and all the records in the um, in Salford Museum there, which has allowed me to then go on and write um, some short essays about um, Peel Park and the, like, all the other park parks in Salford. And it's got a storied history, you know, Lowry painted it. Um, it's there was um, it's had films. Um, yeah, movies were filmed there in the, like the 1930s. It's a fascinating place. And I started writing about that in earnest, and then I got funding to write this Withensee book, and that that took over everything else. But uh, when I've got time, I will return to Peel Park and finish that work. And finally, finally, after uh, yeah, you've got something else in the pipeline that you can talk about. Well, um, I've got a whole load of other uh, events. I've got to finish the you know the next promotional year or so of of Cold Fish Soup, and I've already started work on a second uh, manuscript of um, personal essays that, again, it's the same kind of humour with serious subjects tone that this book has got. But I'm looking at um, masculinity and failures in masculinity and all the ways that I haven't really lived up to the ideal of what is expected. So it's not, it's in, it, it, it's sort of expanding on the ideas that, um, I looked at in cold fish soup with my, my my brother's idea of what represents masculinity and I, yeah i realized that i was just writing these stories that all seem to fit into that shape mm. so um yeah um, that's the the thing that i'm working on and hope hope that will appear in the next couple of years brilliant well i shall definitely be looking out for that um i hope you'll come and talk to us uh, uh and love the words when that comes out absolutely yeah, yeah definitely uh, finally another track adam um the final one and uh trying to remember what it was oh yes creeping coastline of light by mark lanagan so it's um so mark lanagan is one of my favorite um singers and um he was the the lead singer of one of my favorite bands the screaming trees when i when i was first in in, in withensee and um he, he his music was um, like his first two albums, The Winding Sheet and Whiskey for the Holy Ghost, which are beautiful, beautiful records. I spent a lot of time sitting with my Walkman on the cliffs at Withensee, listening to that and contemplating my teenage existence and being all sort of serious and moody. Um, but this is a cover. I can't remember who wrote the original, um, but it's a, a song um, that really captures what it what it feels like to look down the curve of um, a coastline and see these these sprinkling lights of um, houses and amusements as you stare down the coast. You particularly see it in Filey and in Scarborough. And it, it although it's absolutely nothing to do with the any UK coast, and his voice is the most American voice you can possibly hear. Um, it is absolutely evocative of that um, Yorkshire coast for me. So this seemed like the perfect tune. Leaving Hollywood. Sunset to the sea Where the waves Riding on horses I'm looking for The light Creeping 
Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. I'm the early, the boy, yeah.